Up next on Book TV's Afterwards, former New York Times executive editor Jill Abramson reports on the state of the news business with the influx of new technologies and platforms. She's interviewed by Vivian Schiller, former president and CEO of National Public Radio. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Jill, it's great to be here with you to talk about your book. Um, you and I have known each other for a long time. We go way back. We go way back. <laughs> um, we worked together at the New York Times um, in different capacities. I wasn't technically part of the newsroom. Um, and we've kept in touch since. So it's really great to talk to you about your book, which I loved. I found it. It's really interesting because I have lived through all of the things that you describe in the book and know so many of the players. And yet, and I thought I understood this business inside and out, but the way that you constructed it and connected the dots, I found I really sort of got new insights from it. And I'm looking forward to talking to you well, about thank that. You. Yeah. And it's really entertaining and dishy, which is kind of fun. <laughs> So um, the reception that you got uh, at the beginning was glowing, glowing reviews, including in your alma mater. The, uh, the FT called it a masterwork, which is really great. But then um, the last couple of weeks, the conversation has changed, and I think it's probably not too strong to say it's gone a little bit off the rails. Um, you have been accused of plagiarism, which is probably the most serious charge uh, that a writer, and uh, but especially a journalist, uh, can be accused of. Um, so how did we get here? What's going on? Well, all of the, um, you know, original charges against the book, whether it's errors or lack of crediting a source, you know, I feel basically you know, very sorry, ashamed. I, you know, I wouldn't have wanted a single error uh, or a single drop citation. I think anyone who has worked with me and knows my work, I mean, it, it doesn't really make sense. Why would I have spent a 45-year career, like, upholding the integrity of writing and journalism and suddenly become a plagiarist. I've gone through it. It's true that there are six endnotes uh, to, to set the table. I have 835 footnotes at the end of the book, which is often how books do where a source comes from. Uh, there are 70 pages of them. In all, they, they, there have been six passages that have been cited, uh, and in all of those, the the phrase phrasing that is too similar and in, in many cases so close that um, I've corrected them all. I think that I'll, I'll get go back when you say to that you corrected point. It, corrected I've corrected them. in the ebook right okay. away, and the next edition mm -hmm. of the book will be have the the correct citations but some, the ones that I felt were too close I've just put in quotes which I didn't do throughout the book because you know when you in journalism we'd always do according to and then right. quote but you know in narrative book writing that isn't what 
I did or was encouraged to do. I was encouraged to do something that are calling trailing phrase and notes, uh, which I did myself with a little help from to other people, but I'd never done them before. I'm, ta I'm owning this. Yeah. These were all of factual errors are mine. The, these bad citations are mine. But you know, there was absolutely no intention to steal anybody's work. And in fact, in all of these cases except one, a timeout article from quite a while ago, uh, and I, I understand how that was not cited. I, I don't know that our, your viewers are that interested in, in the weeds, but I'm happy to go there. But I have credited in other footnotes multiple times the same authors and the same pieces that I have been accused of stealing. So if I intended to steal their work and not credit them, why did I credit them elsewhere in the book? It doesn't... Mm -hmm. It anyway, I I'm so sorry about them though, and I've said that in any venue I can. I have been in contact with some of the the writers themselves to apologize, and I've corrected all of these. Uh, so when I first saw the uh, saw these begin to come to light on on Twitter, um, first of all, it never occurred to me that you. Did this on purpose, of course. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine anybody reasonably think that you were, you were purposefully trying to plagiarize anything. But my first thought was, you know, clearly in the process of writing the book, notes. You know, we all do this when we're putting together. You Moving cut and paste. You around. move things around. And so, just because I'm not sure the viewers understand, I'm just going to give one Let, example. Maybe let's do example one, because yeah. that that appears to be the most egregious. I'm which not is... sure this is example one, okay. but I think it's a pretty good one. Okay. So, um, And this was brought to light by a, a Vice News correspondent. Vice, of course. All of the yeah. errors and um, allegations have been right. brought forward by Vice. We're going to talk later okay. about how the book is structured, but Vice is one of the four mm -hmm. news organizations that you focus on. Yes. So a correspondent there named Michael Moynihan, uh, tweeted side-by-side uh, side this passage, and I don't know if this is the one you're referring to, from Ryerson Review of Journalism that was published in 2005. I'll read that, and then I'll read the passage from your book. So this is, again, from the 2005 Ryerson. In August 2003, McInnes wrote a column in The American Conservative, a magazine run by Pat Buchanan. In the magazine, he called young people a bunch of knee-jerk liberals, a phrase McInnes and his cronies use often who'll believe anything, uh, anyone with dark skin over anyone with light skin. He laments the liberal views of most of the people who pick up his magazine, saying they're, quote, brainwashed by communist propaganda. So that was from Ryerson. And that's a quote. The, the last part is mm -hmm. a quote. Brainwashed by communist propaganda is absolutely a quote. Um, and in your book, it says, he wrote a column in The American Conservative, a magazine run by Pat Buchanan, calling young people a bunch of knee-jerk liberals, a phrase McInnes and his ilk often used, who would believe anyone with dark skin over anyone with light skin. He lamented the liberal views of his magazine readers, saying they were, quote, brainwashed by communist propaganda. So these are obviously remarkably similar. And again, my first thought was this was an editing error, but you... It was well. It, I don't want to blame the the editor. No, no, no. I'm sorry. In, 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 in your my editing process, editor. which I did yeah. of 
note, taking written notes, putting them into a Google Doc, making things from the Google, um, the Google Doc um, into a manuscript. Right. There were, yeah, many, many times when I was moving copy around. I, I really tried to be scrupulously careful and am genuinely horrified that, that there are these examples. And, uh, but on recent, recently I've watched some of your interviews. You are suggesting it wasn't an error in that this, this copy from, the, from Ryerson ended up in your book. You're saying it's a citation error. Yeah, well, yes. So, but um, how is it a citation error if it's word for word? Almost word uh, for word. Well, that's one where I've reviewed all six. It should have been in quotations, not just an end note. Right, or presumably rewritten entirely, one or the other. Yeah. One or the other. Yeah. Although, you know, it's interesting is re rewriting it entirely, is but basically having the same fact set and Pat Buchanan the quote. Right. Is that really... No. More honest? No, no. no. It, I should have yeah, just qu right. quoted it and said, you know, Ryerson review. Uh, and, you know, in the end, I wish I had done that more and not denuded the actual text of the book from most quotations. Right. Uh, so but so you, that's on me right. again. So I know... Let's stipulate that this was absolutely not intentional. I don't have a doubt in my mind. But what some of your critics are saying, regardless of the intention, it's still the end effect is that it's still plagiarism. And you reject well, that I, notion. I do because plagiarism, and I've, I've talked to you know, some of my, my colleagues in, in the, the English department. And you know, even someone was writing some, something today... It was in Pew, I think, and it was saying, it was like, surrender, Dorothy. Like, Jill Abramson, say you're sorry, admit Kelly this McBride is... Kelly McBride wrote is, about is this for is, yeah. is plagiarism, yeah. but plagiarism does involve um, an intent. It just does. And what, what I did is clearly... Venial, not venal. Uh, it was completely unintentional, and in the scheme of things, not taking like a pat whole paragraph or long passage from something. And so, so that's the difference: is the intent. It's venial, not venal. That was Kelly McBride, I think you were referring to. Yeah, as the well, ethics I, chief I'm at not, you know, arguing. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. there are experts and people, and perhaps even other professors in my department who might think it is, but... You said that um, you thought Vice was particularly unhappy with the way they, they were presented and that they sort of, that this is sort of a form of oppo research. Does that make a difference here? No, it doesn't make a difference here, but it's interesting to me that the only big protests of anything in the book have all come from one place, Vice. Uh, and I, 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 we're going to move on in, in a minute and, and okay. talk about those. But I do want to just just, to, just ask you a couple more questions because, you know, some of the other things that uh, some of the critics have brought to your attention is that intentional or not, um, 
that this would not have been tolerated at the New York Times and would be a um, be a firing offense. Yeah, um, I, and I, that at Harvard, you know, where you're now teaching, uh, that it would be a similar. Yeah, but issue. the standards for academic writing are really different. I mean, there you're. I, I don't want to go into the details, but it has to be on the page itself. And it, it's, it wouldn't have been, I mean, it might have been a firing offense at the Times if the actual examples were bigger and, you know, were someone not actually covering or not paying attention at a news story and then the quickness of filing took lots of quotes from AP without crediting them. But when I was at the Times, there were hundreds of battles that came to me of um, other uh, news organizations feeling we took things from them without crediting them. And that was not always a firing offense. Certainly these examples, if you translate it into how journalism is written, which is different from narrative nonfiction and that type of storytelling, it would have absolutely involved, you know, me talking to the reporter, stressing how serious this is, because I see these as serious, and at least doing an immediate correction and probably an editor's note. But I, I don't think that this these particulars would have been a firing offense. And, and you know, acad the standards in academic writing are just different. Yeah, I would, I, I can, I, I take you at your word at that, except that you are a journalist. You're not just any journalist. You are a but storied, I, legendary journalist. But I'm and it's a, a book, book author yeah. with this. But it's a book called Merchants of Truth, with, and it's about journalism. So I think, I think that may be... Part of the reason I think people are holding you maybe to a higher standard than would be for okay. other Okay, you know, and I, I'm, I'm willing to be held to the highest yeah. standards. I'm willing to say, you know, I could not feel more sorry or terrible. You know, all I know to do is to correct immediately, to try to contact the, the people who are grieved by this directly because it's their work to be in contact with them. And have I, they been gracious about it, or has it, how has that gone? I mean, they all have appreciated mm -hmm. the outreach. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's been mixed. Yeah. I mean, some of them are still angry. Yeah. Uh, um, and and I, I understand why they are. Uh, and, you know, to be as transparent as possible about, you know, how this could have happened. But, you know, in this day and age, and this is a program about books, uh, you know, the author is left being responsible for all fact-checking, um, all indexing, all endnote. Uh, indexing. Even, you create your own index at the end of the book? With a co copy editor, yeah. and the copy editor is someone I yeah. I employ. Has it always so, been that way, or is this no, a new it development? No, it hasn't. It, yeah. Like, you know, I, th I, I don't know the real reason for that change, but I think, like the story I tell in this book about 
the aftermath of the financial crisis when everyone was cutting deeply, every news organization was cutting deeply to, you know, save costs. And, you know, I think that that might be why yeah. in the, the book publishing industry. Um, and again, I own these errors, but, you know, doing 835 trailing phrase and notes, you know, was really difficult. And I was doing it on, I, I, it sounds like I'm making excuses now, and I don't want to sound that way. I own these mistakes, but there were 835 of these footnotes to do. And, you know, I was sloppy in places. And I feel awful. I apologize. And do you have somebody now going back through everything? Oh, I'm doing it. it. You're doing I'm it. I'm combing it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going back through the whole book. Right. Combing it for facts and for any similarities in phrases or for maybe any other examples I haven't found one yet that there isn't a footnote right. for. Yes. Well, this, I mean, the, this is obviously a, a, a frustrating chapter um, no, for many a, people, for you, I'm sure, I, as well. I don't feel yeah. frustrated. I feel really sad and yeah. ashamed. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm trying to explain what happened and, you know, express my sincere horror at having made, I, I didn't want to make a single factual mistake. Right. I'd never want to, you know, use anybody else's words without credit. So, you know, my, my feelings aren't, aren't, I'm frustrated with myself, but I'm not frustrated with the attention to yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, well, there's some important themes in this book, and I, I want to talk to them, and we may come back to this issue a little bit later. Um, it strikes me uh, in in when in reading the book, if I had to uh, extract sort of a central thesis from it, uh, is that you know even as we embrace the digital world and that I mean, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth in terms of this is this mm-hmm. is the message that I felt like came out of your book. Even as we embrace journalism, uh, the the you know the the digital world that we're living in today, which brings some advantages, um, much is getting lost and. Uh, at risk is uh, is that journalistic ethics uh, has become compromised. Is that did I get that right? Or more complicated uh-huh. for sure. More complicated uh, than compromised. There are certain things where I think there's been a compromise, uh, but they aren't things that are directly tied to the news reports of these places themselves. It has more to do with something called native advertising or branded advertising. And so talk about what that is in case what people that don't know. is is advertising that very closely mimics the publication or video that the advertising is appearing next to. Uh, it may be advertising like in the, the New York Times or the Washington Post that has a byline and you know it and, and the quality is very good it's just and and it is identified at the times they call them paid posts mm-hmm. I, I had wanted when this was under discussion at the times and I didn't want to do any native advertising but that was going to be a battle I lost but I wanted it 
label, you know, the little label to say ad, ad or advertising. And it was uh, not labeled. It's called paid post. Yeah, yeah. And so what bothers me about that is, you know, there has been no scandal about these ads so far. I worried there there might be, uh, but... Well, there is but it is something that could sow confusion yeah. in the minds of an audience or readers. And, you know, they're the people I care most about. That's true of the mistakes I've made. I mean, it's my readers who I really owe and I'm sorry to. Is it, uh, I mean, there is a, this is, this concept goes back before the digital era. The sort of advertorial sections, or right. even the New York Times magazine, yes. you know, entire sections that kind of look, I mean, yeah, they're labeled, but they kind of look like they're part of the paper. They're, I think, better labeled. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is you, that is one of several... I um, mean, I'll, I, you know, can I give you an exa- yeah, yeah, sure. example? I've shown this one to my, my students just because they don't know what native advertising is, and you know, I write about BuzzFeed, which began not as a news site, but as more of a entertaining, making snackable well, they still, contact. They still do that, and yeah. they still have that part of the company. And, you know, one of their staples was doing a photo chain of pictures of uh, adorable kittens, you know, dressed up or wearing sunglasses or all different. But kittens is associated with them, and so right. they were doing an, an, a native ad campaign for Frisky's cat food, which is Purina. And the ad is very entertaining. It's called Dear Kitten, yeah. and it's a older cat, like describing the rules of the house to a young kitty. But it might as well be just, you know, a BuzzFeed video. It isn't. Clear right. until the end, very end that it, it's an ad. And it's I also just, not pretending I mean, to be journalism. I mean, maybe this is hopelessly old-fashioned, yeah. but I feel going in, someone should know whether it's an ad or not. Yeah. So. Well, it wasn't. I mean, even if it wasn't an ad, it wasn't journalism. I can't think of any news organization right now, and maybe you'll that doesn't that, do that it. doesn't do it on some level. Yeah, and, you know, I, I write in the book, and this is true, that... So many of these sort of new products and the idea of doing, you know, conferences that are sponsored by corporations, some of which the Times covered, uh, you know, we, during, you know, my eight years as managing editor when Bill Keller was the executive editor, you know, we resisted all of this totally, uh, and... It got to the point, though, that, like, the finances were so stressed that, you know, the, it was a question of do this or the Baghdad Bureau is going to have to close. And, you know, of course you end up saying, you know, the Baghdad Bureau is more important than with all of these things. I was and, at the Times when and they- preserving the quality yeah. of the, the superlative quality of the Times' news report is more important than the battles I waged about a lot of these things that seemed in real time to me so fraught and so important. But as it's turned out, you know, these things have generated an important revenue stream. 
And, you know, my ethical standards in journalism were formed during the print years. Right. Uh, and the lines between, you, you said before, the bi- what we called the business side and right. the news side were, were much less porous than right. they are now. When I, I joined The Times uh, from CNN, I, I had run documentaries at CNN when I was with The Times for seven years in different capacities. The first few years running a, uh, a, a, a channel called the Discovery Times Channel, and then I became uh, general manager of nytimes.com. Tech, I was, I considered myself a journalist coming from CNN, but I was, when I first got to the Times, I heard a question I had never heard before. Which side are you on? Are you newsroom or are you business right. side? And I literally didn't understand the question at first because I considered myself a journalist, and yet at CNN I had P&L responsibility. Right. And I didn't see those things in, at, in conflict because but, I wasn't selling ads. But, so it was, you it know, was I, all I can tell you, I, I can explain why right away, that dur- when print was by far the most important, the print newspaper uh, product that the New York Times had, and the website was still in its relative youth, um, the master of ethics was a very senior editor, a very respected editor named Al Siegel. I remember him. And I remember him explaining to me why there could never be any job in the newsroom where an editor was responsible for revenue, for, you know, P&L. Just that crossed a line that he felt should never be crossed. And, you know, he felt in terms of conferences and even these trips that everyone does now, you know, the, the cruises had and, yeah. one, you know, around the world for $135,000. Like with, you know, the lore is access to the stars of the times. And what Al Siegel's rule was, you know, we sell access to our journalists' journalism, but we don't sell access to them. And is your uh, feeling that the, and, the journalists... And so th- there was right. like this just, you know, tall, tall wall. And I believed in it. That's like what what was drilled into me. The interesting thing, though, is in, in looking at the, as you describe, and I, I want to talk about how it felt for you to write about your own experiences. We'll come to that in a minute. But when you talk about things that were just sort of sort of were shocking and unprecedented to you and not in a good way, some of the things struck me as huh? you know, my reaction was really like when you said the business side had suggested if uh, a Thursday style section was introduced, which it was, or T Magazine, that would be a great revenue generator. They weren't suggesting that they would tell you what was in that no, section, but, but that was unprecedented. I'll, I'll just tell you... Yeah. Finish your question. No, well, that's interrupting. Uh, well, you know. uh, and then I want to talk about. Uh, uh, I mean, does that still strike you as something that is inappropriate, or do you feel like you have uh, your mind has changed at all on any of this? <laughs> I'm just curious because we all evolve, right? And, you not know, too norms, much. Not too much, and I'll tell you why. Principles don't change, but norms. Can I mean, change. the 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 Times purchased what was then called the International Herald Tribune uh, in the early 2000s, and you know, they had half ownership and then took on full ownership, took full ownership from the Washington Post. 
And during the cross-ownership period, uh, the IHT had had paid conferences, but they also did a section of the, the newspaper about watches, right. luxury yeah. watches. Desperately needed journalistic. And, well, <laughs> that, you know, Bill Keller and my collective view was like, there is nothing really newsworthy yeah, yeah. about watches. But that wasn't but, the point, of course. You know, that, that yeah. does run in the times right. now. And it still, you know, rankles me. Yeah. I, and, you know, I was probably not the executive editor uh, match perfectly <laughs> with my time. Will you uh, also uh, challenge um, the access, the, the newsroom's access to analytics I, uh, on how stories are performing? Um, you talk about uh, you talk about an episode where it was introduced at the Washington Post, and well, now you know, and, you know they have these big boards. Right. You see by the second right. what's, what what stories are being. Right. Done, and that may, dare I say, help explain why sometimes when I'm on the post uh, post app, I have to scroll like maybe twice, sometimes three times, because they mix opinion with news on one of their one of their apps. Uh, it's all Trump, because you know, and maybe Trump is is you know he's obviously the master newsmaker, and that's Certainly exactly is, yeah. what he wants. But all of those stories are getting, like, big audiences and lots of clicks. Yeah. And, you know, there is an implied incentive to have so many. And at the Times, you know, I, I have a friend who, who still works there who admitted to me that when they aren't writing on Trump and, and something else, like on chart beat or now the, the times journalists can easily have access to analytics. Uh, so we should explain you know, just they, for a second what chart beat is, which you write about in the yeah, book. So um, chart beat is if you're looking, I'll just explain if you're if it's sort of imagine you'd only have access to this, you know, if you're inside the news organization. Imagine you're looking at sort of the you know the nytimes.com or any homepage. There's an overlay that shows you how stories are doing. What's trending up? What's trending down? It gives the editors a chance, if they want to, to, to move things to around. To move things around, yeah, which right. they do. Uh, which definitely, you know, bothered Bill Keller because he didn't want a popularity contest. He wanted pure editorial judgment. But uh, you describe one of the insights that came from Chartbeat about, I think it was about the New York Times and Washington Post, that uh, one of the revelations that came out of Chartbeat, in, once it was uh, implemented at the Times, was that uh, the average visit to the homepage lasted only 15 seconds. Now, I mean, on the one hand, I completely agree with you about, and by the way, I'm, I'm playing as devil's advocate no, a little bit it, here. It, but that may not be the explanation but, for why. Well, yeah. but on the other hand, if, you're, if, you're, if somebody is staying only 15 seconds, clearly there's a problem. I mean... Clearly, there's a problem that somehow, yes, of course, editorial judgment, we're going to tell you the stories we think we need, need you to know. But a that's lot important. of people now don't want that editorial judgment. Yeah. And I think it's as much a reflection on Facebook being, you know, the most 
I think, biggest and most powerful publisher the world has ever known, 63% of American adults get most of their news on their Facebook feed. I think that's a huge explanation because the articles are disaggregated. They come as single pieces why no one goes to home pages anymore. And some publishers embrace that. BuzzFeed, which is one of the four news organizations that you profile, I mean, it started as an organization that used data science to give people what they wanted. It wasn't the idea of, here's what we think you need to know. Well, it didn't start in news at all. No, but, it was yeah. they wanted information that was compulsively right. shareable. Yeah. And they were creating it for what Jonah Peretti called the board at Work yeah. Network, yeah. which I love. But before we leave chart, because okay, okay. it's one of my favorite, favorite anecdotes okay. that a, a Washington Post reporter actually said that he spent considerable time talking to his psychiatrist <laughs> about his chart beat numbers. <laughs> you know, it, it, well, it creates a, a real anxiety. But do you uh, think that the... But do you think that a, a, a journalist at the New York Times or the Washington Post is genuinely going to think, I'm going to sort of... The, the idea is if I'm they had access write to about these, Trump this week... Or I'm going to write I, about the Kardashians or cats or no, whatever it is. No, I don't yeah. think that at all. Yeah. But, you know, if you're going to pick between Trump and, you know, a somewhat obscure environmental regulation that nonetheless is being changed and it's a pretty yucky story. Actually, that's tied to Trump. <laughs> but you might you might just factor it in your head. Like so many things are tied to Trump more. is part of the issue. Right. I mean, but are, is the news industry and making I that to be say, the Because I feel like I'm kind of being the cranky critic here yeah. that the Washington Post, the New York Times... BuzzFeed and even Vice have had fantastic coverage, deep investigative coverage of Donald Trump and Russia. BuzzFeed, you know, had a finalist for a Pulitzer for for stories they did about suspicious murders of Russian oligarchs in London, where Russia was behind the murders. The you know, the Times and the Post have been in this thrilling kind of old-fashioned news uh, newspaper war. You know, one, you know, one ha- having a huge scoop, and the other, like you know, today the Washington Post had you know this meeting in the cigar bar in New York between Paul Manafort and you know his Russian uh, buddy. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I think the coverage has been fantastic, really. Uh, so you I were... just want to make that clear because this my book isn't a piece of media criticism. I Lord it doesn't read that yeah, way at all. Just because we're yeah. kind of on, talking know, so yeah. much about this, I just wanted to make that point. It's about, you know, four n- news organizations, two who were latecomers to news and are you know, new, new, all digital kind of upstart news organizations. BuzzFeed and Vice. BuzzFeed and Vice and two, you know, very well-respected legacy newspapers, the Washington Post and the New York Times, and how they all change themselves and twist themselves during what I kind of see as 
Web.20 or 3.0. It's the, the period, the, the, it begins with the Facebook news feed starting, the iPhone being introduced, becoming you know the right. main instrument that people use to read the news or watch the news. And you know how, you know, when I started the book, I, I, it, so it's their stories. It's an, a, a narrative about characters, people, and, you know, a very disruptive period, both financially yeah. and in gathering the news. So, you know, it, it's, I think, ends up mo mostly admiring. That's why, you know, I'm somewhat puzzled by the reaction at Vice because I, I saw my my portrait overall of them as being you know balanced and well you do you do document a lot of their yeah. missteps and you know some of the but you know that internal is, issues around you, know, you hair. said we're going to go back to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to that issue but yeah. that is why I gave in manuscript version the three chapters of Vice to the the then spokesman of Vice to rake over. And did they come back to you with any changes? Uh, they did. And I am so certain that I may, they didn't give me anything in writing, whereas the other place I gave manuscript pages was the, the Times, which came back pretty comprehensively and in writing. So it's possible, because I'm better on print than through my ears, although right. I so do So each news to, organization saw the chapters. An editor yeah. at at right. each one, so I asked. But anyway, um, what point were were we on? That we were talking about chart beat yeah, and yeah. analytics. That, that BuzzFeed and, has been able to embrace and harness this to, well, they, uh, for a yeah, long time. I mean, that, what, the, that the, was the all. shifting I'm fortunes. Not, I mean, Jonah Peretti is sort of the, the brilliant, you know, inventor of virality. And at BuzzFeed, they actually were rewarding, you know, the people who worked there, not mostly in the news, uh, but they had like a, a, you got like some kind of star if your story went megavi, right. and you know, their their biggest story, which, you know, the newsroom celebrated was, you know, is this stress blue and black or white and gold. Right. That got 26 million, maybe more now, hits. And, you know, there was like a big celebration in the right. office uh, I don't see anything that. wrong with that. It's not journalism. It's just entertainment. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the Times covered it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it became a news right. event. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing that's going on now, and even... Uh, since your book, I mean, the, the acceleration of change is remarkable. Even since your book has come out, or when did you close the book? My book is data yeah. in some All ways All four now. organizations, I mean, BuzzFeed and Vice have been hit by very serious layoffs. BuzzFeed News? I mean, in general, you as you know, yeah. you know, the digital news organizations, like Winter has come. Winter has come. And the irony is that... Facebook and Google, which enabled all of them to grow initially, are now like the instruments of their decline. And that's because they're hoovering up uh, 
You know, for new digital advertising, almost 90%. One could uh, submit that the digital news organizations made a mistake by putting all their eggs in the Facebook well, basket. Um, and for a long time, it worked. Uh, Jonah Peretti, you talk about it, came out with this manifesto, was it 2014 or 15, and says, are, distributed. distributed media, it doesn't matter if we have a website or a homepage. Right. Read us wherever you are, and we're happy. Right. And then all of a sudden... You know, because mm-hmm. they can't control the algorithm, that okay, yeah, that that, but yeah, a mistake for sure. And he has recently been a b- big, loud right. critic of Facebook because he's saying, "You take all of our, you know, expensive, hard to do content, right? And you, you know, pay us nothing." So how and do we? So he's, you know, banding together. I mean. You know, Mark Thompson of the Times has been a big critic. I mean, Rupert Mur- Murdoch, I think, was a, a smart publisher From because he always refused to give Wall yeah. Street Journal and Bloomberg stories away. News and Corp and Bloomberg both really resisted. Yeah, that but notion you know, of the mantra, in. you know, in the original sin is that mantra: news had had to be free. Yeah. And so everybody's website, except the journal and the FT in the beginning, were free. And that, looking back on it, seems like such a crazy mistake. And even when the Times decided to try for the second time to ask di- ask digital subscribers to actually pay, you know, there were, was a lot of ridicule inside the company. A number of your former colleagues in digital didn't want to do this uh, because free, you know, you want to build scale of audience. And, you know, that's kind of the same ethos that Jeff Bezos has had in building Amazon. You have to go, you know, for maximum scale and he's succeeded with it. But that could only work if digital advertising right. was going to, you know, really bring in significant, significant revenue, and it never did, and now... It did. Ch- it did for a while. Well, it well, did. Not it was enough. growing it was double ne- digits every yeah, year. Yeah, but yeah. it was never going to be enough to support the huge n- news budget right. of the, of the t- newsroom. So the Times has been now... Um, this is now the third Finally. attempt at a paywall, wildly successful, 3.3 paying digital subs, which is amazing. Um, Seven hundred nine million in earnings reports last week. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary. Um, do you think that is a model that can work for other for news organizations I wish everywhere? I did. Yeah. I wish I did. Me too. Um, the The problem is that only news companies that do journalism at the highest quality levels and you know publish stories that you can't find anywhere else, uh, the model will work. Uh, but You think you it's know, only a matter of quality? I do. You do. Think that's, do you I think? do think. So quality, reliability, you know, I do think that, you know, since so much attention was, you know, put on Facebook and real fake news appearing on its site, that that there are a lot of readers that want to go back to like a trusted 
name in in news. I don't but know. I'm curious him. what you right. you think it is, but I do. I think quality is the business model of the time. I think quality is absolutely the appropriate business model, or should be for any news organization. But I'm not sure that quality. You talk about a brand that represents quality. The New York Times is sui generis. It's everybody around the world knows who the New York Times is. There are many very high quality small publications, some digital, particularly when we're talking about local. It's very difficult. How many subscriptions well, are people going to strip? Pay most for? of them, if their newspapers have either closed or been stripped down to bones. And many of and those, how are you going to ask your local community if they're still open to pay for something that's been degraded in quality? So many of I agree, and uh, but many, but there are new news organizations that are springing oh, yeah. up. Look at Denver. So Denver Post has been you know, an abomination in terms of the number that the, you know, Alden Media hedge fund has stripped uh, for ridiculous... That's that Alden yeah. Capital. But a lot... Of, well, right, Alden, Alden Capital. So a lot of those... Some of those reporters have left. They've started a new news organization right. called this Colorado Sun. Mm-hmm. Colorado Sun actually is doing okay. And it's all digital. It's all digital. But how many of these news organizations... That's the question is... Will get people to pay. Is it a nonprofit? It, no, they're not actually a nonprofit. Okay, I don't know that that should matter. New York Times is not a nonprofit. Well, so, you know, there 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 are now many of these like excellent all digital news sites, and some of them are nonprofits, so they've been able to get funding from you know Pew, uh, Knight, what, yeah. you know, some of these big foundations and and you know the uh, pro publica i'm on the board of that and you know besides you know the washington post and the times like witnessing like this surge in subscribers which is you know partly the so-called trump bump the checks like started you know coming into propublica they've been able to grow like topsy yeah, yeah. and you know they they exist to provide first quality investigative work often to local and regional uh publications or, or local tv stations that can't afford to do investigations anymore yeah. so you know they've been around for a while joel kramer started the min post in minneapolis like i think more than a decade ago, and, you know, he did it because the Mi- Minneapolis Star Tribune, where he had been, I think, both editor and publisher, like, was stripping yeah. down. I do, look, I think that they, where I completely agree is if if you're not quality, then forget, all, it. All, forget it. But even then, it is very difficult. You quote uh, several times a Clay Shirky, who I think both of us Revere is really a great, he's an academic and a great thinker about the media. And he wrote, you know, a very seminal piece, I think you talk about in the book, called Thinking the Unthinkable. And his conclusion is that it's about what's going to replace the traditional dual revenue stream of ad revenue and subscription for a print newspaper. And his conclusion is there's no, there's no, you know, new revenue stream that's going to come down. He has a line in that that just says nothing will. But but there's, and then it goes on to say, but everything might. Meaning, try experimentation, um, 
and uh, and look, the yeah. daily podcast began as a, a yeah. an experiment, and you know, Michael Barbaro is a huge star. I think yeah. twenty five million people had downloaded, and it's much more now. Right. Uh, that was an experiment. Let's try it. Right. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the. Um, the section on the on the New York Times because you write this book. I mean, it's very lively. It's very anecdotal. Like I said, it's very dishy, which made it fun. Um, but you do have sort of a repertorial distance for most of the book, except for a the section, central, a of, section the, of the New York Times, where you switch section. to first person and you tell incredibly personal story I about do. your own and how how hard was that. Well, I actually considered trying to do it, keep it all third person, and that was ridiculous. <laughs> like, <clears throat> Abramson went up yeah, to, no. you know, <laughs> that, that was weird. Gonna do. <laughs> so it was really hard. Uh, I rewrote that. It's not that, <clears throat> that many pages, but I felt like I never got it right yeah. exactly. But should I say what it's about? Yes, yeah, I was just about I don't about think to... we should keep that. No, a no, no, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my voice is getting a little froggy. Yeah. You know, it's about um, the period of my serving as executive editor where. You know, the first I, woman to serve as executive editor. And as first woman, managing editor, first woman, yeah. Washington bureau chief. Uh, but I was, you know, my kind of mentor when I was managing editor was Janet Robinson, who was the CEO, you know, and how to navigate the the politics of the times. And you know, maybe that's ironic. I mean, I thought she gave me a lot of really great advice. Uh, but she was fired, you know, yeah. in my, I think, first year, just the first year anniversary of my being executive editor. And she was the first woman. And there's a new CEO who was very, you know, Mark Thompson, who had run the BBC. Yeah. And in his job, he ran everything, news, and, you know, business. And so he came from, you know, a, an institution that, at least in, in his way of leading it, was very blended. And, you know, that was new and different at the times, that there would be joint reports, like half journalism. But you're not suggesting he was trying to drive oh, the editorial no. agenda. Yeah, okay. No, yeah. no, no, no. But he was... You know, making big requests of, you know, the newsroom, not about don't cover the campaign or but (laughs) but that had to do with the way the way we work. Uh, And, you know, all of the executive editors I had worked for, like drilled into me, the newsroom's independence is so important. Uh, So basically, you know, I you know, raised Kane too frequently. And, you know, I know that I was perceived as, you know, the word, word difficult. But, I mean, you probably know this from when you were there. Uh, and so I, I didn't want to be 
not self-critical, but, you know, I was fired in May of 2014 and got a job evaluation uh, from the publisher that, you know, didn't talk at all about the amazing journalism I had shepherded, but, you know, talked only about, like, my, you know, failures in personality. Can I read a line that you have in the book? That sure. You, wrote about? you said, I was seen as playing favorites and as being overconfident in my opinions. I had a bad habit of cutting people off and didn't listen enough. In short, I was seen as pushy. Yeah. Um, that is a familiar refrain for a lot of yeah. women. Yeah, and after I was fired, Paul Steiger, who invented ProPublica and was my boss at the Wall Street Journal for a while, his wife designs jewelry, and after I was fired, she had a whole pushy line of jewelry, and she gave me a necklace that says yeah. pushy. Would this would have happened? Would this have happened if you were a man? Is it gendered? I mean, I think I, you know. I, I, a number one, I was not fired because I'm a woman, and I've never said that. I've been asked that question, uh, but you know, I had plenty of time after I was fired to really go back over, you know, my tenure, and I read some studies and. To, I got had no management training before I took the job. I, I should have demanded it. My two predecessors had it. Um, it wasn't offered, and I didn't ask for it. Uh, but I read some studies, and they said that there's lots of data showing that when a woman achieves and gets the very most senior position her likability falls off a cliff. And she is described very personally, often with the B word, often as pushy, too ambitious. And that, like, the same examples that, you know, provoke that kind of judgment are actually seen as leadership in... Man, right. so I I felt you know there is you know there is a double standard, and I recognized some things, not you know everything. As I said, I am self-critical. You've even showed, even though I try so hard, that I do interrupt, and I apologize <laughs> profusely. I'm, I'll be fine. Thank you. Times <laughs> I have, but. You know, it was a, a mixed bag, uh, and you know, obviously, incredibly painful, uh, both to go through and then to to revisit. Do you think there's a, a gendered element of some of the criticism you're coming in to now with the book? You know, I have I I have trusted readers of everything. On you don't read all the, everything that's written about you. No, yeah. no, um, no. I've been actually ordered even not to read the reviews, and I haven't been able to not Most read. Most of the reviews are pretty them, good, <laughs> but I haven't read Twitter unless it's something serious that I have to. But you know, my daughter has read it all. She's a, a surgeon and. 
you know, she said, you really don't want to ever look at it because it has a lot of really mean things about your voice, your looks, and even your marriage to daddy. I can't oh imagine yeah. what that is. But, you know, I do think that there's a gendered element in that. And I don't know whether the, the people making, you know, get, tweeting this stuff, they may be women. I just don't know. But I just think... I don't know. They just felt at a certain point at such an angry, fevered pitch. Well, uh, it may be that some of it is you're also... Uh, one element may be that the reaction is is such because you're a woman. The flip side of that is to be held to sort of a standard wear uh, of perfection. And do you feel sort of any kind of pressure to be held? No, I, I put that pressure on yeah. myself, and that's why I am so disappointed in myself that there's even one error in this book. So, no, I, I don't. And I haven't talked about that. I mean, I, you know, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure, like, what the proper answer is. So. I want it. We're just about out of time, so I want to. I know this just went so fast. I want to sort of close by just a little bit of a look ahead um, at the broader picture of what's happening in news. This okay. is a. How much time look, do we have? We have all of about like two minutes, but I think they'll let okay. us go to maybe four. But this is an incredibly fraught time. Journalism is under attack. A BBC cameraman was attacked at a Trump rally. Maria Ressa is in right. jail as of last night. Been arrested in Philippines. This is happening all over the world the embrace of alternative facts, everything we know about echo chambers. Whoa. Where do we we go? Uh, You know, Marty Barron, uh, you know, has famously said, I think you have it in the book, when saying you are anti-Trump. He says, we're not, you know, we're not at war with Trump. We're we're at work. We're at work. But is that enough? Do do journalists need to take a more activist role? Here I am interrupting you because we have so little time. No, it's not enough. Perhaps it was at the point he said that, but... The you know the attacks have continued at so, from the president at such a high decibel level that invariably there had been you know some violence before. I you know unfortunately I expected to escalate at those rallies. You know every you know he's the master of making his presidency like a, 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 a story and every story needs a good villain and he's made us the villain and it's so dangerous and I think you know no it has to be answered I loved the Washington Post Super Bowl ad I loved at the Academy Awards last year when the Times had the truth is hard campaign I think we we have to speak More. up much more, um, much louder, and remind people why the founders uniquely protected our profession and the First Amendment. You know, the the first is first for a reason, and we were entrusted at the beginning of this country to give people reliable information and to protect them against abuses of power. And the need for that is ever greater. It's woven into the fabric of democracy. But I share your worry. But, you know, I have to believe as our country 
will survive this presidency that so will our profession. Amen, sister. And that is a perfect place for us to, to stop on that hopeful note. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah, uh, thank you. Great. Thank you. If you'd like to view other Afterwards program 